Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Masters of the Matrix. Today, I have a special guest, Sarah Webb, who is an author, inspirational speaker, and spiritual activist. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. It's an absolute pleasure. So what is Sarah Webb's mission? I am on a valiant mission I believe that meditation is so healing and I want to convince the world that it is mainstream, modern day magic. It's medicine. And it's by and large, completely free and available closer than our fingertips. It's so portable. It's so healing. And I firmly believe that when we meditate, when we access that your body is awake, right? Technically, but then you can kind of put your body to sleep and allow the mind to access those lower frequency vibrations that we are accessing the unified field. What quantum physics postulates as unified field of all possibility, all creativity. I've had incredible experiences during meditation. And so that is my mission and and vision for the world is that everyone would meditate because I know for a fact that we would not have the problems that we do if at least 50% of the world would meditate. And 50% 50 would be absolutely incredible. The amount Mm. of changes that we would see. So for those out there that um, aren't meditating and they maybe they use specific other modalities such as you know yoga or going for a walk in a park because i know that there's a certain amount of people out there but that are triggered by the word meditate because it it almost feels Mm -hmm. like it's work what do you say to those people that haven't taken that step yet that are fearful that maybe they're they're too busy or they can't slow their mind down enough how can they take that first step for those that haven't taken it yet Great question. First, I'll quote Buddha. Everyone should sit. I think he says you should sit for at least 20 minutes in meditation every day, unless you are very busy. And then you should sit for an hour. I will give you some science behind why meditation works. And these are just basic biology, neuroscience facts. And I've strung them together because I've found them in my own reading. So you won't really find these things anywhere else, but you can look up and validate the facts. At every single moment, it doesn't matter if you're in the countryside or on a mountain or at the beach or in a busy city, we have available to us billions of bits of data, billions with a B. The human brain is pretty amazing. And it processes out of those billions of bits of data around 11 million bits per second. But we're only conscious of between 40 and 50 of those 11 million bits per second. 
on average, 45 out of the 11 million bits that are hitting our brains and our bodies, we're conscious of. So I did the math. We're conscious of 0.04% of all of the reality that is technically available to us. 99.96% of all the information that we have inside of our bodies is being processed by the subconscious. I'll give you one more statistic and then tie them together. We have five senses. Of course, everyone knows that. And in our bodies, we have on average 11 million sensory receptors. 10 million out of the 11 million are dedicated to our sight. So how do you access the 99.96% of information that your body already has? You shut off 10 million out of your 11 million sensory receptors by closing your eyes and go inside. You know, there's a reason why with our eyes open, we have gut feelings and and maybe know things. But when we reach those lower levels of brain waves, like we operate in beta, and when we go into sleep is when we go down into alpha, theta, and delta. Gamma is above beta. There's five different levels. And gamma is that like super consciousness when you are problem solving, you know, solving a puzzle of some sort. But most of all, we operate in beta. And then that first stage of sleep is alpha. And well, most meditation is in alpha. And that's an incredibly creative state. And then you can go into lower states, of course. But in order to be able to access that while we're awake, we meditate. So there are thousands of different ways to meditate. There's Uh, focusing on your breath, focusing on your body, focusing on an image, focusing on a mantra. I personally use a mantra and I I can go into that later. But to answer your question completely about people who might use other modalities like walking or doing yoga, just simply refer back to the statistics that I gave you. You're not going to, sure, you might. There there are times when our brain does flip into theta and that's when we're doing something that requires our subconscious, like driving a car. A lot of people say that when they're stressed, they like to drive. Well, it's because typically you'll be able to access those, those states. But imagine how much more powerful it is when we actually close our eyes, shut off 10 million of our 11 million sensory receptors, then we're able to access the things that are inside. I've had incredible things happen to me. The other day, this was just last weekend, I was meditating in the morning. My wife and I sit up in bed every morning, just prop the pillow and meditate together. And I, this friend of mine who I hadn't seen in months just cropped up into my consciousness. And I thought, okay, I need to reach out to her name's Jessica. So I did on Instagram. I should have texted her. I could have texted her. I'm trying not to should on myself lately, but <laughs> I could have texted her. I, she didn't get it. But then I saw her at a conscious dance uh, event that evening. And I said, oh, I reached out to you on Instagram today. She said, I was thinking about you too last week. And so it's that information from that unified field of all possibility that's able to filter through that, that we're instead of filtering it out because we're distracting, dissociating. I know this probably doesn't apply to many of the people who listen to this podcast, but the vast majority of people are not being present. And so yes, meditation is a way to access that. Sure. Walking meditation, yoga, they are forms of meditation, 
but they're not going to be as powerful. And, and for those people who say that they're too busy, you should see my schedule. And I've been meditating for 20 minutes twice a day for six years plus. I learned when I was five months pregnant, then I had a baby. Now I have three. I have made time at least twice a day. Sometimes it's once, but very, very few times in my life has it only been once a day because it is modern day magic. I mean, the, the organization that I have with my thoughts, with my brain, the, the sense of relaxation that comes just after a few minutes. If I don't have time for my 20 minutes, I'll sit down for eight or even three and just get quiet and allow my nervous system, which is so aptly named, right? <laughs> to calm itself down, to regulate itself. So I know that that was a very long answer to your question, but it's so crucial and so delicious. <laughs> the point is making it a habit. And that's, that's sometimes challenging for people. So it's, it's an ability. It, it's, it's a modality in order to connect to mm. the magic of life, which is mm -hmm. my purpose. My intent too, is like, realize the magic that we all are living that now we all actually are. Mm. Because the mind yes. has been sort of taken over. It's been hijacked, not only by our own internal desires, but external programming from our mm -hmm. parents, from society. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I, I always condone, you know, these ways of, of finding that stillness in, in us. Because there's, there's, there's that layer. We got to, once you peel back the layers, you could then find that magic. And you were just saying that, you know, you thought of your friend in, in that or she popped up into your mind. It's probably because she was thinking of you and you had access to that awareness at the time. And that's right. just one of the magical things that you can do. And I'm sure there's other tons of magical things that have probably happened to you. When I say magical, actually probably a physical manifestation of, of, of I know I've experienced healing in, in yes. meditations because we're, we're getting our minds out of the, out of the way. Mm -hmm. And isn't it true that doctors, that the big secret of like doctors is that they, they just provide ways to allow the body to heal. Right. And it's just, it's, and, the, and there's no magic there. It's just the body is a magical device that knows how to heal itself. We just have to get out of the way. Exactly. And so with that, I mean, so for those that are out there that, you know, we're living in such a, a, a sort of very distracting and very like, you know, noisy world where, where our, our phones are in front of us all the time. Our TVs are on. We always got to be go, 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 go. How can someone that has their mind going, you know, 120% all day build up to that point where they can experience that? Like I know my mom, for example, we try to get her to do that. And she's, you know, <laughs> she has struggles because her mind's so busy. She can't even have a quiet moment for one second. So is, are there ways that they can build that up? I know you say you can meditate for eight minutes, but what about people that maybe they can only have five seconds of, of stillness or, or three seconds? Can they build off of that? And if so, what are the ways they can do that? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, our, our lives are run by our habits. Scientists say that even for the most creative people who need variety, at least 40% of their lives are, are ruled by habit. And, and most, most people it's 
over 50%, even up to 80 or 90% of your lives, especially those people who really like their routine, like things to have, like to have things a very certain way. They're more at that like 80, 90%. And starting a new habit or breaking a habit is hard. That's why quarantine was difficult on most people because they weren't allowed access to most of the habits that they had formed and why, for example, I was president of my Toastmasters group at the time when we trans transitioned over to Zoom. It's why the people who went with us over to Zoom, maybe some stayed, when we went back into the physical room after quarantine was lifted, almost nobody came back with us, just very few core people. And it's about those habits. So James Clear has a fantastic book called Atomic Habits, and he breaks down the four ways to make a habit, the four ways to break a habit. And one of the things that he says is, you know, like, let's say you want to start a exercise routine, you know, don't make it so insurmountable that I've got to exercise five days a week for an hour each, just start the habit. And so maybe the goal is when I get home from work, I'll lace up my shoes and drive to the gym and promise myself that I'll go in for 10 minutes. It doesn't sound too bad, right? But if you just make the habit of, let's say you've got something in your day, like you pour your coffee every morning and you add your sugar and creamer. And while you wait for it to cool, you go and put on your makeup or walk the dog. Maybe you could set your alarm for 10 minutes earlier. And instead, while you're waiting for it to cool, sit down, close your eyes, and just take those few minutes to relax. Think about your breathing. Think about your day or, or just notice that the most powerful times to meditate and the easiest, I think, to implement are as soon as you wake up in the morning and right before you go to bed at night. It's easiest to implement because, hey, you're already there. I don't recommend meditating in bed lying down because then you'll probably fall asleep. But if you can get enough pillows behind you so that you're not like hitting your head on the headboard or wherever you're at, that, first of all, is an easy time. And second of all, the state of our brains, there's a, there's like kind of a, imaginary trap door between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. It's here's the fancy term. It's called a hypnagogic state in the morning after you wake up and a hypnopompic state in the evening after, right before you go to sleep. It has to do with the melatonin. Some people take melatonin to sleep that your pineal gland <laughs> is producing. And the pineal gland, as I'm sure you know, is incredibly important for our spiritual evolution. So if you can capture that time, not only is it an easy time to integrate, but it's also a really great time to allow the mind to get to this state where you've got more access to what's bubbling up from underneath. It's a really beautiful place if you want to use it to manifest in your life. Let's say you've got something you're working on you kind of have an image of that. You can utilize those few minutes to focus lightly, not, you know, you don't want to like try to hone in on it so much, but just to notice your body and think about this thing that you want to attract into your life. 
Beautiful. Thank you for that. That was really well explained. I resonate very deeply with uh, with all of that information. Absolutely. So when you mentioned the pineal gland, that's something that popped up to me right away was, you know, I, I think um, for, for my own experience, I know that I had to do sort of a, a pineal gland cleanse because there's a mm. lot of things in our diet that mm. we may not be aware of that are actually sort of calcifying our pineal gland. And for those out there that are interested in this subject, um, there are things such as fluoride that oh, yes. have been proven to calcify your pineal gland. Um, and, and other sort of calcium-based products. I don't know if you have maybe, I don't know about this in particular. I don't drink milk, but if people have too much milk, is that a possibility that that can calcify their pineal gland? And do you know of ways that we can perhaps decalcify and access that sort of third eye gland, that pineal gland that has access to all? I knew about the fluoride. I had not made the connection with the calcium in the milk. I'm vegan. So it doesn't, okay. and I've never drank milk. Um, so not a factor here, but I definitely, once I found out about the fluoride, I stopped getting fluoride mm-hmm. treatments. That was like a decade or so ago. And I don't give them to my daughter, but yes. I and fluoride in water as well. Oh, absolutely! I mean, a a yeah. lot of cities, a lot of counties, uh, a lot put of countries put fluoride in their mm-hmm. in their water, and so you know you can look in your county or country or, or city's index. They should have information on that, and if they right. do, that's something that you may want to consider removing from your diet. I, I, out here where I live, I, I get you know absolutely fresh, clean water from uh, a, a good source because I know that's our water. Water is basically liquid crystal. And it carries oh, information yes. and it releases information. So it's, it's a purifier. And we know so, that from Hashimoto's book, right? That's right. Yeah. So very, beautiful. very, very wonderful man. So yeah, that, that's the one thing that popped up during that sort of information uh, uh, that you gave that, gave that to us. That was really beautiful. So I, go ahead. well, I, I don't know of any proven techniques, but I can give you some anecdotal, you know, um, Just some of my experiences, as I mentioned, I practice TM, Transcendental Meditation, which is not something I'm certified to teach, but it's something that I've uh, followed for the last six years. And I've also learned some of the more advanced techniques. There's four advanced techniques that you can go learn. It does cost money. So I'm not telling people to go out there and, and find yourself a TM teacher. But it's what worked for me personally. I had tried all kinds of different mindfulness meditation techniques for years and nothing really stuck. But once I guess, I don't know if it was because I paid for it or because I went to a four-day course. It was like two hours each on each of the four days. But when I learned the second technique, something started happening on my forehead. Every time I would meditate, I would feel like a tingling. And then when I learned the third technique on the other side of my forehead, there was like a a tingling. And then when I learned the fourth technique, it was like a bar across my forehead. And it was like, I could sense that there was an energy transfer going on through my forehead. Do I know for certain that that was the activation of my pineal gland? I have no idea. But I can tell you that it's still some, I mean, this morning after my, I did like an hour of meditation because it's uh, Saturday, it's the weekend today. And I was able to get 
a little bit extra in because I'm such a nerd and I've just got to have more if I can have it. And about midway through, boy, it was like my whole, I, I felt it like even out the back of my head a little bit too. And, and it's not scary. It's like a delicious feeling. And I just allow it and just say, you know, if I feel like, if I ever feel like there's any dark en energies, which what is darkness? It's just the absence of light. You know, I just say in my mind or even out loud sometimes, like, you're welcome here if you're here for my highest and greatest good and the highest and greatest good of the expansion of humanity. And otherwise, like, please dissipate. So, so I really think that, um, there's some fear around meditation. I think that people are afraid of what might happen. They're afraid that they're not doing it right. They're afraid that, and the body is going to speak up because it doesn't want to sit there, which is why people like in your life claim, I, I hear it all the time. Oh, I can't meditate. Well, it's because you're not in the habit of it. <laughs> so Anyway, I digress getting back to our other conversations, but, um, that's wonderful. Oh, no, oh, I, I, oh, I, I, I resonate with that. Absolutely. Because I, I, we all have to, our beginning stages and mm. when we're, when we're comfortable, and this is a question I have for you a little bit later, but comfort mm -hmm. is a very strange thing, a very strange word because comfort may not necessarily mean mm. our best, what, what yes. we really is the best for ourselves, but I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, yes. so you wrote a book. Are you, and it's coming out very soon. Can you tell yes. us a little about it and why you wrote it and why now? Well, I wrote the book as a healing exercise for myself. And it was a, the reason why I'm publishing it is because I think that it's a, another modality to reach people who may not be, I, I'm very active on Instagram. I wish I weren't. I wish I didn't have to be, but it's a very effective tool for reaching people with my message of healing. I discovered a long time ago that I, I was just on Facebook at the time and I used to really kind of get um, annoyed at what was being shared on, on Facebook. And so I realized maybe 10 years ago that you can curate it and you can say, I don't want to see this anymore or like hide people. You can stay friends with them. And so I turned my, at the time I was really into politics. This was before I started meditating. And so I turned my Facebook into a news feed. I just followed, you know, CNN and whoever it was. I don't even, all the different news outlets, the local ones too. And so my intent for being on Instagram is to inject it with some positivity. And my intent with the book is, that this is just another avenue to perhaps reach people in a small way, especially since it's a collection of my original poetry. It's 55 poems. And some people might say that poetry is dead. Well, I argue that out of all times in history, in this timeline going backwards, poetry is the most alive. If you look at memes and sound bites and the prolific use of quotations, which are shared all over. It doesn't matter where it might be in the workplace, you know, whatever you're being presented with, people don't have a whole lot of attention span <laughs> these days. So I think that poetry is a really beautiful way in order to very 
quickly and succinctly and concisely and yet poignantly hit people with little bits of healing. And I wrote the book as uh, the first 21 poems. My book is called Look Lush. First 21 poems are entitled Look. And it is primarily about how my meditation has helped me to heal from a deep sexual trauma that I experienced 14 years ago. And then the second part of the book is entitled Lush. So that's why the book is Look Lush. And that's 34 poems. And it's about my rise from the ashes as I got sober and came out of the closet almost three years ago. I was 80 something days sober when quarantine hit. And so I spent a lot of time in nature and at the beach, keeping myself sane and, and off of, I mean, everybody all over the airwaves, they were talking about drinking and how like this was a, something that people were using to comfort them. And I stayed sober throughout it. And I wrote some, you know, fun poetry about some of the women that I was entertaining at the time, if you will. So this book is definitely not for everybody. Uh, but it is uh, an art piece that is very cathartic for me and I know will speak to some people. And it doesn't go into any of the gruesome details about these things. It's, it's very surface on that, but very ardent on how meditation promotes healing. And um, it, it's not a how-to, you know, but more of a commentary on the beautiful healing nature of introspection. So it's available on September 16th on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's available in print for $9 paperback. It's 88 pages and it's available for a digital download for four bucks. So look lush. Sarah Webb. And thank you so much for allowing me to share that bit of information. It's not my, not my main focus in this world. Uh, don't buy my book. If you'll just please try meditation, find the kind that works for you and stay consistent because a lot of people try to meditate when they're super anxious. And even with a daily practice, it, it's harder when you're anxious. Like, <laughs> you've got to have the practice and it's, it's not meditation perfection. It's meditation practice, right? We practice yoga, we practice meditation, we practice law, we practice medicine. It's not perfection, it's practice. That's right. Thank you. And I'll be sure to include the information on Sarah's book in the notes um, below. So one word that came out to me right away was trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're so inundated with various levels of trauma. Um, sexual trauma, physical, emotional, and you name it, everything under the sun, someone has experienced some level of it, some smaller, some larger. And so there's this collective sort of connection that, you know, being on earth this time, it seems like an unavoidable event, an unavoidable thing that, that happens to us. And, you know, I look at it that it's either something that can either wake us up to our true potential yeah. Or it's something that can actually shut us down. And so therefore it wins, you know, sort of in quotes until mm -hmm. we're ready to wake up. And so with your experience, you know, it, it seems to me that you turned this traumatic event into yourself awakening into 
you being now what you call a spiritual activist. So can you explain a little bit about that, like how you became a spiritual activist and how you sort of turned that trauma and alchemized it into who you are now? So you used meditation, you used other modalities such as transcendental meditation. How did that like physically and mentally, emotionally sort of work? Like how did that actually get to you to be able to say, okay, were you able to forgive, for example? Can you explain that a little bit? Beautiful. Thank you so much for that question. I've been writing some notes so that I can cover it all. I agree with you that trauma, you know, air quotes wins until it doesn't. And I do want to qualify that, you know, trauma doesn't have to be a capital letter T. It can be a lowercase T, especially for things that occur to us before the age of 10, really before the age of like seven or eight, when our brains are in those lower frequency states, when our subconscious is literally being programmed, as you suggested, you know, it might be because uh, I've done some transpersonal hypnotherapy work with a therapist here in St. Petersburg, which as a daily meditator came very easy. <laughs> but when we are before the production of our prefrontal cortex, which is the brain's CEO in the front part of our brain, which begins development around the age of 10. Before that, you know, everything that we're presented with is a, a fact, a, a law, a, a basic belief, and we don't really have any control over it. And so one of these like little T traumas, which might be affecting us today, might be just that our parents were too busy or we got yelled at by somebody, even at school, or or that we were bullied in some way. You know, those are those, we might call them little T traumas, but to that very impressionable brain, it was a big T trauma and it continues to play out in our adult life. I love that you used the word alchemy because I used to call myself a spiritual alchemist, but that the word seems a little esoteric for some people. So I, I changed it into activist because I find that that is very accessible for most people. And you asked about how. Well, trauma did win for a long time. My big T trauma of trigger warning here, if anyone has kids in the car or, you know, big trigger warning here, I, I was raped by eight men. 14 years ago, on July 25th, 2008. And I repressed it. My subconscious mind did dutifully exactly what it was supposed to do. Uh, unfortunately, at that tender age of 27, I did not have the wherewithal to go to the police, tell my parents. I told my sister we were on family vacation when it happened. And Today, I feel so grateful that I survived and that, of course, I'm thriving now. And, you know, you talked about, and maybe I'll answer some of your questions here. I, I don't want to jump too far ahead. But so, so trauma won by me repressing that 
for a certain period of time. And so what I started doing or what I, you know, I was in my twenties and I was, I was not a, I was not a non-drinker at the time, but at that point, I really started to numb out more and more using a very legal drug called alcohol. And I drank and I drank and I drank. And eventually once I had a baby and started meditating, which those ha- I was five months pregnant when I started meditating. I started to notice that automatic thought. I think that that's one of the gifts of meditation is that you have this kind of 30,000 foot view, this metacognition, this thinking about your thinking, starting to notice your habits. And so I started noticing for the first time that I was sober when I was pregnant, that I would have this automatic thought at the end of my, I was a teacher at the time. Oh, I want to have a glass of wine. And then I would be like, oh gosh, no, I don't have, I don't want to have a glass of wine. I have a baby inside of me. I've been trying to get pregnant for a long time. So anyway, the, the drinking, when I finally gave birth and, you know, got back to drinking at night, it, it really ramped up because I was very unhappy in my marriage. I, you know, was continuing to use alcohol to soothe And it's almost like the alcohol was like, okay, she quit for nine months here or 10 or 11, however long it was. We've got to stake our claim. And it's like, I'm personifying alcohol because I really feel like that's when the talons really dug in. And I started noticing because before I had a baby, before I got pregnant, we were going out to restaurants and I would like maybe have a glass of wine at home and then have some at dinner and then have some at home. And, but like when you're stocking wine in your home and having to buy it all yourself, it, I just, I really, I was like, wow, I'm drinking a lot. And then when my daughter, who's very precocious, was 18 months old, we were at a party. And so there was this room where all the kids were playing and she picked up this little chalice, kind of looked like a Mardi Gras cup, which is so intentional of the universe to do to me because I'm from New Orleans. It was like a little King's cup that had jewels on it. And she said, this is my wine. And I, I mean, I get chills all over my body just thinking about it. Like it was like something just hit me straight in my gut. And I was like, what am I teaching my daughter to emulate right now? So I started trying to read myself sober <laughs> and It's only, so it took me about a year and a half to actually get sober. I finally found a wonderful group of women in my city where I, you know, they say that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And I was able to get sober. And then I realized that I was, I needed alcohol in order to be intimate with my ex-husband. And that's when I came out of the closet. I was gay before I was ever raped, but I was afraid because I was raised in a strict Southern Baptist household. I talk about this in my poetry in the book. And so I was taught that homosexuality is wrong and I was afraid. And so this beautiful cascade of events of beginning to meditate, getting sober, coming out of the closet. And once I was stable in my sobriety, I was able to address these issues. And did I know that what was going to come up was this this sexual trauma. No, I knew that I was angry. I knew that I, because I got married to my now wife. She has uh, two biological children. I have one, so I have two bonus children and blending families is no joke. <laughs> and 
so I was noticing myself this anger cropping up. And so I'm like, okay, I've, I've got to do something about this. So I started seeing a hypnotherapist and your subconscious mind is ripe and rife with lots of information. And so when you go into these hypnotic states, whether that's through an induced trance or self-induction with holotropic breathing is this really difficult way to induce these memories come up. And it's like, you can literally see these scenes in your mind. And so I was able to go back to these traumas because there wasn't just the one that I alluded to. There were some earlier when my brain was being formed, when I was being programmed, which I discovered as well. And I have completely forgiven every single one of these people. I understand that trauma is here to help us heal. And the only way that we can heal is by being injured. I firmly believe that we're here in these bodies, you know, we're souls having a physical experience. It's not like we're bodies having a soul experience, right? We have bodies and our bodies are here to tell us things. So some of the work that I do with my private clients and I do, I'm an inspirational speaker as well. So I talk about some of these things, but a lot of the work that I do is when we're experiencing something frustrating or difficult, sad, when we're afraid, when we're angry, all these negative emotions. If we can drop in, shut off 10 million of those 11 million sensory receptors and get inside of our bodies and just say, okay, where is this occurring? And you can call the chakras woo-woo all you want, but each one of the chakras is directly related to your endocrine system, a gland which produces hormones in your body. And if you can just be with that sensation, whatever it is, and, and with time, you can start to ask it, okay, what have you got to tell me? What's the same similar event that occurred in this area or that I've repressed in this area or that I've put in for, there's information, right? Our bodies are just, just as you said, our bodies are just compressed light and light carries information. And so if we can go inside and access that information, we can heal the entire collective consciousness just by healing ourselves. Because at every moment we're sending out ripples, literal electromagnetic spheres, and we are affecting people around us and they can be in our, in our literal sphere. They can be in our metaphorical sphere. It's just like that entrainment that occurred between me and my friend, Jessica. <laughs> right. So, um, I don't I think that. that trauma actually wins. I think that, that we're the ones who win mm. and it's the collective who wins. Thank you for that. Thank you for that Beautiful answer. Question. Beautiful answer. Thank you so much. A couple of things sort of poked out to me as you were speaking yeah. about that. And, and, and one way I can relate to is, is that word forgiveness or unforgiveness, mm. whatever we're holding in that energetic non-releasement, because as energetic electromagnetic beings, you know, we have a, a positive and a negative pole. I'm not saying in, in, in the negative sense is bad, but just as right. electric, like electric current. And right. So things need to be resolved. And if they're not resolved, 
they come out in really be crazy ways could be mental it could be emotional and eventually they will become physical and i can speak for that to myself that's happened yeah and it came in a crazy way for me and it was there to teach me it was there for mm-hmm. say listen life doesn't have to be like this if you keep resisting there's more of this is coming and, and so there's a pattern there if we don't resolve our trauma and we have to see it first and this is why we need experts to help us guide us to maybe something that we've repressed, something that we actually don't Mm -hmm. consciously remember. Or Mm -hmm. if we can find that place in meditation, we can, but there's people out there that can help. So I really resonate with that statement a lot. Now, do you think that collectively there is sort of a a tie-in to where we're at in societal, um, you know, in our path, societal path, as far as like the amount of alcohol is accepted the amount of that, that drugs and drinking and partying is accepted and normalized and commercialized is that do you think that's just been programmed or you think that we're kind of carrying, carrying a collective wound that is a, 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 a some collective trauma and that's why you know it's so normal to drink like i i drank until my for, 40th birthday and I said, it doesn't do anything for me anymore, so I'm giving it up. And I don't miss it at all. And for those that do drink, mm-hmm. I'd have no judgment against you. I, everything mm-hmm. serves a purpose. I do believe everything, mm-hmm. everyone's allowed to experience what they want. There's lessons in everything. Mm-hmm. But when you do find that point where you don't really need it because you're always in that state of joy, for me, right? What's the, that's, the, that's my goal anyways. It's not always going to be attainable. They're gonna have, everyone's going to have a moment. But that's the intent is like when you're in that state of joy, why would I need to reach out for something where I'm already inside such peace? So do you Mm -hmm. think that there is sort of like a collective trauma that's sort of happening with the world? I mean, especially in, you know, North America, United States and Canada, it's just so normalized to be, hey, the weekend's coming up. Let's, let's party. I absolutely believe that there's collective trauma. I mean, I'm going to go really deep on my personal opinions, which I don't usually do. Um, and I, and I hope that's okay. Uh, I mean, I, I believe that there is no separation. There is no <laughs> Greg or Sarah. There is no separation. We are all the energy of source energy. And this illusion that we're, this drama that we're playing out is, exactly as what I just spoke about, you know, it's to help us heal the collective trauma. I did an Instagram live a couple of weeks ago with, uh, we call her the chief fairy. She's one of my very good friends. She's a Reiki master. And it was about how s- sexual trauma is really a trauma of the collective and how it, it, she was focusing on how it plays out in the workplace and how even if you weren't sexually traumatized, we all are because of the fact that somebody was and it causes them to react in such a way and to carry a certain vibration and for their electromagnetic field to be in such a way so that it, it does affect all of us. In regards to spirits, alcohol, there's a reason why it's called spirits. I mean, the, the things that people do when they're blackout drunk, yet somehow ambulatory, is astounding and questionable. And I'll let people pick that up where they would like. But I, I love how you 
conceptualized forgiveness as this energetic release. And I'll just quote, I don't even know who said this first. It's just one of my favorite things to say, especially to my private clients, is that anger is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. Well, how do we release that? It's called forgiveness. And I, I did something on Instagram on this recently because anger is something I've had to work through. It, social scientists postulate that there are, of course, we have lots of emotions. Brene Brown wrote a book with like 89 different emotions. But if you really boil them down, you know, like what is frustration? It's low level anger. And so like, really they say that there's like four or sometimes five, it can be argued, basic emotions, core emotions, um, anger, sadness, fear, and joy. And then some people say that desire is a fifth one. I just like to deal with the four, anger, sadness, fear, and joy. And notice like happiness isn't in there. And all these things are fleeting. These are emotions. These are not states of being. Happiness is a state of being. But joy is something that, I mean, you can't, just as you alluded to, even if you're enlightened, you can't remain in, in a constant state of joy and bliss. You're happy. And sure, you might have punctuated joy and, and maybe punctuated sadness. But, but let's go back to that. So, so forgiveness emanates from love. Joy is elevated love. Compassion is soft, empathetic love. And forgiveness is compassion, right? It's compassion for the other person. But the fallacy there is that it has to start within us. Forgiveness begins with forgiving ourselves for whatever it might be. So let's go back to anger. I say that anger is not really a core emotion. And that's because, and Lama Rod, Lama Rod Owens doesn't say this explicitly in his book, but Lama Rod Owens wrote a book called Love and Rage. And what he does say in that book is that if you lift up anger, and this is a Buddhist concept, there's usually hurt underneath. Beneath anger is fear or sadness. So I say that anger is a secondary emotion, and that's because... If you think about it, when you're angry, it feels like you can do something. It, it empowers us. Being afraid is not very empowering. Being sad is not empowering. But anger, I can tell that person off. I can punch my steering wheel. I can, you know, scream. I can throw something. So anger is usually a sign that there's fear or sadness or some sort of a combination of both underneath and anger is doing no one any good and it's hurting the person who's angry the very most you can see a literal you can see this in your head you can see this by i see people road rage in traffic somebody pulls out in front of them maybe that person has poor peripheral vision because they're 89 years old maybe that person is on the way to it doesn't matter their, their wife is in labor and they're it doesn't matter why they pulled out in front of them. If you or, or said person behind the driver's seat who's been pulled out in front of is angry and yelling, you're the one who's driving away, carrying that with you. The person who pulled out is not being affected. 
most likely. Of course, I, I, I would be affected. I would feel really bad. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, that that's a really nice visual that you can see this separation of where the anger is only affecting our nervous system. It's flooding our bodies with cortisol and dopamine and adrenaline, which our bodies can't tolerate for a long period of time. So yes, we can heal the collective trauma just by forgiving ourselves first, because if we don't forgive ourselves, we're unable to forgive anyone else. And yes, we can heal the collective and just become more and more evolved because I, I think that our society is really in those very first stages of evolution <laughs> as opposed to some others. Yeah. Such a great answer. Um, I really, uh, really appreciate that. I was smiling because, you know, back in my old chapters, and this is where I have to yeah. also have forgiveness. Forgiveness is so important. Self-forgiveness is, is the mm -hmm. first step. But yeah. where you're talking about road rage, I was yeah. uh, a part of this where I'll tell you a funny story. I don't think I've ever said this before, but, um, you know, I, I, I got a bit of road rage and, you know, where you feel your, where I feel had felt my anger would, would be in my sort of my solar plexus. Mm -hmm. And I was driving with my wife and someone had cut me off. And, you know, we're all sort of programmed to be in this driving state to get to this place where we're so not in the moment. And so something that, that triggered me. And so I kind of went after this person. I'm not a conf confrontational person, even when I'm angry, but I went, I went over driving really fast, really uncomfortably fast to this person to say, you cut me off. And I'm going like ridiculously fast. And I pull up and there's this old sweet lady driving in this car with her, uh, with her husband. And they're just, you can tell they're sweet. And I just, in that moment, <laughs> you know, just how you had that little cup with your daughter was the universe mm -hmm. saying to me, look at what you manifested. And mm -hmm. I'll never forget that moment. I just like, just everything came into that moment to teach me a lesson. Uh, yes. I don't, I don't know. I don't know everything. And, and when, that's the thing about rage and anger is that, yes, you can get, it's, it's, that's you're, you're, the saying is you're filled red with, with rage. That's connected to our root chakra because you can get yes. action done, but it's not the right action. And if you're angry and you want to do action, it's not going to be the right the right action. It's there to show you that there's healing to be had. And for me, I had to forgive myself to be for such a to be such an a hole to say, you know what? Like I thank that old lady and her husband for teaching me that lesson. And for anybody else who had to put up with my, you know, like you know, if I ever I, I didn't do that often, just so you know, but it just made me feel guilty. And then if we don't forgive ourselves, and I was mm -hmm. oh, you know, then I I, I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve that. And that can be very so deteriorating internally and energetically that, you know, I, that's why I was smiling between the, what you said there about the anger and the road rage and forgiveness. I, that, that's to me, the biggest connection here is we have to forgive ourselves for whatever we perceived ourselves to do because we, we did our best in those moments. And that first step of, of self-forgiveness is probably going to be the hardest step to forgive others is actually mm -hmm. going to be the easier step. Because you come from that place of compassion, as you said. You come from that place of togetherness, that we're all just here to teach lessons to each other. And we're all here as keys for each other, essentially, to mm. open our doors. And we're all different keys and different sound, different music for each other, different symphonies for each other to help guide ourselves to our next evolutionary state, both on an individual and collective level. So I just really, I felt that deeply as you were speaking there. I really do appreciate that. 
So I'm writing thing, that down. That's so beautiful. We are keys and music and symphonies for one another to help us unlock. That is so beautiful. That is poetic. I love thank it. Greg. You. Thank, thank you. you. And and something that also that came up to in in your in your answer there was was fear. That's the cortisol levels in our you know mm. ten years ago, twenty years ago. If you think of our collective state, we weren't being bombarded on a daily basis with right. dreadful horrible news about death mm. and death toll numbers mm. and control mechanisms and fear mechanisms. It's like, you know, the, the, the spirit has been taken out of society. Like the magic has been taken out and we're sort of looked, we're, we're forced to look or, or encouraged to look at is this sort of left brain on or off world, this, this binary world where it's like you either fall in line or you die. And so this is something that I've struggled with sort of early on because we're, we're, this technology that we have is such a beautiful tool to share, but it mm. can be also, I use the word hijacked to sort of encourage fear in, in people. And so instead of our bodies being in fear when they're meant to be in fear, when we're running from a bear or something like that, we're sitting right. in fear watching TV. We're sitting in fear watching mm-hmm. our, our Instagram scroll. So what are your thoughts about that as far as how can we cope with what's going on on this like large media scale and this this narrative about, you know, the, the magic that we aren't and these human bodies that we are and this fear that we're being sort of led to believe, right? So what, what's what's your take on that? I absolutely love your questions and your introspection. I I have so much to say about this. And as an inspirational speaker, I kind of trick people into some of my meditation talks by talking about stress and about how the body processes stress and how meditation helps us deal with stress. And I talk about in-depthly a lot of what you're speaking about, about our nervous systems and, and our sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic nervous system, and that fight or flight that is the sympathetic and the parasympathetic is rest and digest and how it's so wonderful that our sympathetic nervous system is enacted when we need to fight a, an invading tribes person, for example, because our physiology is thousands of years old, or if we need to flee a jaguar with giant claws and teeth, right? But Fight or flight can be activated by, as we alluded to, traffic or your boss or your kids or your spouse or that annoying coworker, whoever it might be, a client if you're an entrepreneur. And in order for us to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, there are some really simple things that we can do. First of all, we can get out of that fight or flight because when we are, when that is activated, we're typically thinking about something that occurred in the past. It's our subconscious mind that's being activated. For example, if we had eaten a berry, let's say, you know, back Cro-Magnon man, person, eaten a berry, made us sick, we're going to repress that information until the next time we see some berries of the same color and shape. Oh, that's when it comes up, right? Our subconscious mind represses things. Well, we can get out of that subconscious mind by embodiment, by noticing right? Because most people live in anxiety, the future, or depression, the past. So if we can embody the now, invoke our full capacity of our lungs, because once we go into fight or flight, 
we start breathing from the very top portion of our lungs, which is fantastic if we're trying to recruit blood to our extremities to fight or flee. Not so good if it's trying to recruit brain power and to stop our hearts from beating so that we can effectively deal with this emotional confrontation. That's usually what, what we're dealing with. So belly breathing. And then, of course, making sure that we I am right here, right now. And a really great way to use our belly breath is to inhale through the belly, like activating the full capacity of our lungs by pushing that diaphragm down, which makes our belly push out. So inhale to the count of four, exhale to the count of six, because when we sit down and... Or literally yawn, that's activating the parasympathetic nervous system that rest and digest. So if you can inhale to the count of four, exhale to the count of six or eight and do that a few times, that'll get us out of that fight or flight and into a place when we can actually use the full capacity of our brains and bodies. Because when we're in fight or flight, uh, if you've ever read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, we literally don't understand anything except for stress. We don't understand anything except for an attack, confrontation. We can't hear certain tones of voice in people. It's what's happening literally physically in our bodies. So <clears throat> you talked about the media. <laughs> and I used to be an information political junkie. I was so invested in it. And when I started meditating... I happened to learn, not because of the type of meditation that I do, but around that era, I learned about this hypnagogic and hypnopompic state. So what do most people do in the morning? They flip on the TV, watch the news, or maybe they go over to their apps and ingest some news. It might be the last thing you do before you go to bed at night is watching the evening news, especially the local news, about all horrible things that are happening in your area. These things are programming us to expect that bad things are going to happen. And so if, I mean, I don't watch the news. I get alerts. I know that the Weather Channel is going to alert me about anything that's super dangerous, not just the weather, but you get um, real-time news as well with the Weather Channel app. And so I don't consume the news like I used to. But if, you know, you're in finance and you need to know about everything that's going on, I would encourage you to just try to not ingest it during those hypnagogic and hypnopompic states so that you can do yourself a favor and not feel like the world is against you all the time. And I wrote another thing about, about the heart, but I'm not even sure what my note means. So, um, that's wonderful. That no, that's that, all the that, universe had for us. <laughs> that, that's exactly what I was going for. That was, that's what it, what the uh, intent was. So you know that that media thing is very interesting because this kind of ties into that earlier topic that we talked about comfort comfortability. And mm. you know, someone like I think of like my dad for example. And when I go to my dad's for Christmas, he's got the news blaring all morning, <laughs> all day, and all night. And I'm telling you, like, because I am very sensitive to energy. I oh, can yeah. actually feel this in my stomach. Like, oh, like yeah. it just it actually physically makes me ill. So I have to excuse myself from the room to be away from that energy because it's just so uh, toxic for me. Um, and mm -hmm. people have gotten to their, to that, you know, sort of place where they're so comfortable with it because they've been, it's, it's a ritual. 
It's the ritual mm-hmm. for the past, who knows, 20, 30, 40 years. And it's something that you do. You watch the news. And if you don't watch the news, you get your head buried in the sand. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I've been told. Uh, but I'd so obviously disagree with that because you can get news from various sources. And so we build these places that we think we're comfortable in. We really believe mm-hmm. that we're comfortable in these in these situations, but yet they may not be. I'm not saying if someone's watching the news, if you watch the news, that's fine. But is it bringing you your best? Is it uplifting you? Is it making you feel that you can heal? Is it making you feel that you can accomplish anything? And if it doesn't, then you need to question that. So how can we, as people, sort of bring out these places that we think we're comfortable, whether it's eating? You know, I used to be a massive overeater, for example, because it's where I found comfort. And I'm sure a lot Mm -hmm. of people do that and continue to do that. And it's something that, oh man, food tastes so good, pizza or whatever it is. But obviously, you know, that taste of, you know, two, three minutes of eating, and then you got like two days of pain because you just stuffed yourself to the gills. And, you know, I went through this like roller coaster up and down for many years because of that, you know, like as far as like just not feeling very well. So how can we as people, whether it's drinking or eating or you know, sex or drugs or whatever it is that we're, we've built this comfort around or watching the news, how can we bring that to the surface to say, you know what, is this really good for me? Why am I doing this? What's the pattern here? And how do I break out of it? Beautiful. I love how you evoke the vices here. And, and I mean, comfort is definitely something that helps for a certain amount of time, but everything in moderation, right? I I have found a lot of comfort in food as well. And, you know, for some people, it's people or isolation or gambling or the internet, you know, distraction, dissociation, or maybe over podcasting or work. That's another four letter word you know, that's, that's pervasive as a way to escape. But I mean, we know that being comfortable is not a place where we're going to grow. Unless you're talking about overeating and then we might grow out laterally, right? But if you want to grow muscles, for example, let's take an easy example. If you want to become a a champion biker, or if you just want to fluff up your exterior muscles, or if you want to help your uh, intrinsic muscles and get better at yoga, what happens to the muscles in order for them to grow? They get ripped. They get ripped open. How comfortable is that? It's not. Right. I mean, even if we are a walker and we just walk a few miles a day, every single day, well, if you walk double that or even 50% more, it's going to tax your muscles more and, and rip them and you'll be sore. And so comfort is not the place to be if you want to get better. And I'll never forget the first time I heard the saying that when you're green, you grow when you're ripe, you rot. So if you're sitting in comfort, you're progressing further and further toward the rotting stage. I'm not, and people can go for decades of their life in this stagnant homeostasis where they're not growing, where they're just feeding into the programming, the matrix, if you will. 
And I am just really big on that. That's been my life mantra for myself, though, is that I always want to be learning and growing. And I know that that's not the case for everyone, but everybody's got their own journey. And usually somebody has at least one area of their life where they want to be uncomfortable, where they want to challenge themselves. And, and so, you know, I, I, I don't know the answer, but I, I know that with quiet introspection, we can find our personal answers for how to break free from whatever the, the vice or the thing that's controlling us totally. might, might be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, like you said, we all learn differently and we all learn at different paces. So we need to be aware of that. And we need to know that we're not alone on these healing journeys. And, you know, there comes a time that if you're ready for your healing and you're ready to bring to the surface of what needs to be brought to the surface, then it will await you when you're ready for it. And if you're not, you're not. And there's no wrong in that. You're not a bad person. Um, you know, there, you just experience life, how you want to experience what you're comfortable with. But, you mm -hmm. know, if, if I can say from my own state of, of growth is that, you know, when I was most uncomfortable, yes. that's when I grew the most. Absolutely. And if I can, and that's why, you know, taking that step out of your comfort zone, just even, mm -hmm. uh, even one step a day or one step a week to say, well, what if I try it a little bit differently? What if I force myself to be a little uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. What's going to happen then? And just be an experiment on yourself and see what happens. And number one is to be gentle on ourselves. Because yeah. how, how tough have we been taught to be in ourselves throughout our, our childhood, throughout wherever you are in the world. I know that it, we we've, are just very hard on ourselves because that's just what we've been born into. And it really should be the opposite. We should be very gentle. Right. And that gentleness is going to sort of bring out that love and compassion and that healing more naturally, more quickly for you. And it'll actually bring out what you need as far as like teachers and healers. So if you're ready for that, that step and you don't want to do it alone, there will be someone there waiting for you that can help you take those steps. So thank you for that. Yeah. Just one little thing talking about that self-deprecation I heard years and years ago, and I have this reminder come up on my phone once a week still. Just change. What was I thinking? Because I said, oh, gosh, what was I thinking? You know, and when we're learning a lesson to what was I learning? That really helps with that self-depreciation, that internal sabotage. Like, yeah, be gentle on yourself because oh, yeah. every time that kind of, you know, ties it all. Every time we make a mistake, it's a lesson and it's getting us out of our comfort zone and we can take that information into the next life situation and do a better job. I love that. Thank you so much. So Sarah, as we conclude our chat, we're coming up to that time. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you would like to share with the audience before we say goodbye? I am just so grateful for this time. I, I, um, you know, my, my biggest thing is, is just meditate, just do it. Don't make an excuse, start the habit, find the kind that works for you and be consistent. And 
even after six or seven or 10 years, you might say, okay, this is not working for me anymore. I'm going to find a different kind of meditation that works for me. And also for you meditators out there, I don't normally say this, but this just came up into my consciousness. The best recommendation that I have for people, because I know a lot of people, they're like, I'm trying to get my mom to meditate or I'm trying to get my whoever to meditate. And the best example is just our own example, that quiet. And then somebody might notice in your life, your best friend, hey, you're different. You you reacted to that situation or you responded to that situation differently than what I would have seen before. What are you doing? What's different? And so that's the, the best example, because when we push things on people, a lot of times they're going to be even more resistant than if we would just allow them to. And, and you can speak anecdotally about it, but but you're welcome to, if you're on social media, follow me on Instagram. I am at Sarah Webb says, that's S-A-R-A-W-E-B-B-S-A-Y-S. And if you're interested in hiring me as an inspirational speaker or as a private coach, my website is the same, sarahwebsays.com, S-A-R-A-W-E-B-B-S-A-Y-S.com. I only take two private clients at any one time for a 13-week program is not the right word, but it's a, it's a 13 week time period. Uh, it's a bespoke, very custom coaching program. I call myself a spiritual activist because it really does involve, uh, co-creation with the client. I only take two at a time just because I'm such an empath and I'm so invested in my clients that I can't handle any more than two energies at a time, but I am available for, um, for inspirational speaking, public speaking, whether that's on Zoom or in person. And you can find more information about some of my typical things that I talk about. Although a lot of those are custom. I do corporate trainings for offices, medical staff, you name it, just to learn how to quiet their own nervous systems with the power of meditation. I also talk about some of the other uh, traumatic healing things that we've discussed, but... um, Thank you so much for the opportunity to share my light and and to reach the people who are listening to your podcast. This is such a beautiful space to be in and, and I am getting all your energy. It's so beautiful and enlightening. Thank you so much, Sarah. I feel the same, absolutely. So I'll be leaving the links to Sarah's information in the podcast notes below, so you'll be able to find her information there as well. So once again, I want to thank Sarah Webb for joining me today, and you have a great day out there. Bye.